From Small Data Industries, this is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Ben Finaradin, and on this show, I chat with people that are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. Welcome back, folks. At 31 episodes, nine months in on this little podcast, we have talked to some incredible guests, and the kernels of wisdom that they have shared along the way, I know that I personally have found to be incredibly invaluable. And buckle up, because we are only getting started. The spring is shaping up to be one amazing guest after another. I normally don't do this, but here's a little sneak peek at the list of folks we'll be hearing from in the coming weeks. Ebony L. Haynes, Lauren Cornell, Miriam Benani, Candace Williams, Wang Shui, Emma Dixon, Richard Blos, Gabby Veers, and Dragon Espensheed. Now, if you want to hear more behind-the-scenes updates, we are trying something a little bit new for the show. We have started a Patreon, and we're still, of course, fiscally sponsored by the New York Foundation for the Arts, So if one-time tax-deductible gifts are more your speed, you can still head on over to artandobsolescence.com slash donate. But if small monthly donations are more your speed, that is a great way you can help the show and our mission of paying the artists that you are hearing from on the show. You can now do just that by going to patreon.com slash art obsolescence and there are fun little perks to thank you for your support i'll be sharing all kinds of patron only exclusive content over there so i hope that you will check it out now like i said at the top we have heard from 30 folks over the last nine months and many of these guests have shared advice for aspiring artists conservators curators and more so we're trying something a little bit new this week and i am calling it the advice episode (laughs) we've compiled here All of the kernels and nuggets of wisdom that guests have shared over the last nine months into a little compilation for you. And if you're wondering who said what, you can find the full transcript, as always, at artandobsolescence.com. Without further delay, let's kick things off with advice for artists. Make vectorial work. When you have a concept, always try to go for the domestic scale, something that you can afford, something that can be a proof of concept or a prototype or an artist proof, and then ensure that that concept can then grow. For example, if you're making a small animation, you can imagine, well, what would that be like at the size of a whole building or at the size of a museum? So that these works can actually scale up in ambition and allow you to create more independence because the problem with a lot of media art is that you're going into extremely expensive arrays of things. All you need to do is do a proof of concept of that in a smaller scale, document that well, and then somehow convince gallerists or collectors to invest in the bigger version of that maquette version that you've just made. So that's a robust way to not need a huge studio. You work in maquette scale, only to be able to deliver once you've been paid a version that is a little bit more sizable. Make money, but don't compromise. (laughs) I still think compromise is the wrong thing in order to make money. Keep your sense of humor. Don't let anybody tell you what to do (laughs) and don't throw anything away. Just because you are being made to pick between things doesn't mean you actually have to pick between them. Sometimes you can do both and sometimes you can do both and more. And sometimes you don't have to do either. Just approach everything from that deep sense of curiosity, but also that 
inner knowing because that inner knowing is the thing that is helping you decide what you should give attention to and what deserves attention and maybe what also needs to be put on hold or put on pause or just connecting to that inner knowing and that curiosity and letting that lead you instead of false binaries and false limitations that are based off of scarcity. Whenever there are major shifts in the market, whenever there's major shifts in the discourse, it can be a little unsettling. It can make you sort of question the path that you're on. Sometimes it's easy to feel a bit buffeted by the winds and to lose faith or to have a kind of crisis of confidence. And I think that the important thing to remember is that the work is the work and that doing good work is the most important thing. There will always ultimately be an audience for good work. You may not find that audience immediately, but I think eventually the work is seen and appreciated. I've known too many amazing media artists who are making art in the 60s who had nobody show up for them for a long time, only to have their retrospectives, you know, 40, 50 years later. If you believe in the work that you're making, I think you stay the course. And I'm not saying to not be open and receptive, but to not be so easily shaken. And to also understand that the discourse that's happening right now, you know, there are many art worlds and there are many audiences. And just because your work isn't for everybody or isn't for a particular moment or a particular curator or a particular collector doesn't mean it won't find its audience, it won't find its people. And so I think community is actually one of the most important things in art and any art world whether it's the crypto space or the mainstream art space or the digital art space or whatever, you just have to find your people and you make art for yourself and for them. You don't need to necessarily worry about fitting into an existing discourse. You make the discourse, right? You change the conversation. It's an incredible privilege if you're able to do that. But I think if you really believe in what you're doing, you have to have faith in that. I had a lot of creative energy and I just didn't know how to build a life around that and wouldn't figure that out for many years after. But I think I would have told myself to like not worry so much. You're not in a competition with others around you because you have your own interest in what your life is going to bring. And that's going to be possible for you as long as you like have that vision. I would just say not to worry because whatever you're after, like you'll be able to make it happen and it's going to be okay. <laughs> be prepared for a long road. <laughs> I think some people unfortunately think they're going to make a career. <laughs> you know, the chances of that are minimal. You really have to find out whether you were born to do this. <laughs> you know, you can't do anything else. And if that's not the case, then you're going to be confused for quite some time. Just keep going. I always think the easiest thing for people to do is quit. And that is very attractive to a lot of people. I mean, myself included, you know, so I think that the thing that I feel like I've really connected with other practices and admire is just people that continue to do what they're doing as, you know, trends around them change. Just really, you know, proverbially closing one's eyes and listening to your gut there's kind of some mission you're on there. Just kind of keep going with what your gut is telling you and not getting too um, hung up on what you need to get something done. I mean, that can be a huge mental block. I think the biggest mental blocks are in our own minds. And sometimes we use things like, oh, if I had more money, if I had more this, and it's just finding ways to continue to do that. Curators are really there to support you and to champion you. And if they want to work 
with you, there's usually a really good reason why. I would encourage anyone, if they're interested in a particular person or in what someone is doing, to reach out. I think that there's no harm in reaching out to people and asking for a phone call and asking for a conversation. And I think when it comes to curators, I think artists should be demanding of them, but also not too disappointed if curators push back. <laughs> We've also heard some great advice for folks that might be interested in getting into the field of time-based media art conservation. I think it's still important to get your hands dirty, you know, install stuff for artists, go and shadow somebody doing that, make yourself useful, intern in an artist studio, you know, work with the installation crew on a media art show. You know, I think that kind of understanding how things go wrong is really foundational. I've really been recommending to emerging conservators that heading down that field of independent research, really being honest with yourself and be like, this is what I get. These are my skills but this is where I'm lacking and then going out and doing more study or spending time working with people outside of the conservation community, digital specialists, film projectionists, audiovisual installation crew, contemporary art installation crew, and trying to really just become a sponge to all this kind of knowledge. One of the huge early influences for me was the gallery's contracted electrician. I learned so much from him. To me, really stepping outside of the conservation field and being okay with not having the answers and listening to people who have had a different journey and a different experience. Being interested in lifetime learning is certainly something that comes as a huge plus. As new technologies are developed as we speak and artists will always be ahead of us before we can even think about developing concepts, how to preserve them. It's really engaging and is really inspiring. And again, it's centered around constant learning so if you are interested to become a conservator of contemporary art or more specifically time-based media art, hopefully this will appeal to you. Also, besides the hard skills that you will learn, equally important is for the future time-based media conservator that they have very strong soft skills and very strong communicators as you will work in a highly collaborative environment and have to communicate with different individuals from other fields of engineering, of computer science, or a neon technician, an AV engineer. So we certainly can have the knowledge all by ourselves. So we are highly, highly dependent on this collaborative spirit that also makes our community so wonderful. It's really a community of sharing. Learn about the field. It's not for everybody. It's not well paid. It takes a lot of effort to get into the field, just to get into a graduate program and get some experience to see if it's for you. Do you like working in a laboratory on objects? And then thinking about the different sort of subfields within the field. Do you gravitate more towards paintings or photographs or time-based media or archaeological materials or physical structures? 
and then investigate the graduate programs because they all have different areas of specialization. Join the American Institute for Conservation and go to their website, explore it, start reading articles, maybe even go to some meetings, professional meetings. So you hear lectures by professionals in the field and start building a network, get to know people in the field because these are the people that are going, going to be writing your letters of reference to get into graduate school. But also pay real close attention to the courses you're taking if you're an undergraduate to make sure that they are the courses that are required for these graduate programs, the art history, the studio art, the chemistry, and in the case of time-based media, engineering, electronics, and to build the, um, the transcript from the right kinds of courses, and then apply to graduate school. One really special thing about time-based media is that we all have a different skill set and set of interests coming into it. And I think that that is something that everyone should just embrace and go with. So if there's something that you already know about and you want to stick with it, just go with that. If you're like me and you're curious about everything, like go with it. There's no one track to get into this field. And there's so many things that you'll come across <laughs> as a conservator if you, you know, do that career path. The more that you can bring to this work, the better. It's going to benefit not only yourself, but the entire field. Just ask. You shouldn't let your lack of experience and knowledge just stop you from wondering and, and asking. I just decided to write a, a master thesis on software-based art preservation with very little knowledge of software. And it turned out okay, because you just learn. As long as you're happy to do that, then it's fine. It's literally just finding the people that can help you and ask because my experience in the conservation field is that you will get replies from people that you think, oh, they're super busy. They're not going to say anything. They're not going to answer my emails. And you get those answers. Take your time. I always thought to myself, oh, I have to go to graduate school right after undergrad. And I look back at it now and I think to myself, wow, I had all this time to do this, but I've rushed into things. I, I can't speak for everyone, but from who I've talked to who've have also been archivists of color or conservators of color. I think we feel rushed getting into this field. There's this notion that we have to present and do our best from the get-go rather than learning, doing trial and error, things of that sort. It's just a lot of pressure. I know for me, like as a Black, queer, non-binary person in this field, I feel a lot of pressure. And this is specifically for anyone who is a cultural heritage worker who is queer or Black or non-binary. I understand that pressure and it's okay to feel that pressure, but also realize that the work that you're doing now or the experience that you will get from being in this field is going to be beneficial and support everyone and support yourself as well. You do belong here. If you really do have a passion for cultural heritage work, you do belong in this field. Also, we have, of course, talked to some incredible curators with decades of experience, and they've passed down some great advice for today's aspiring curators. Follow the art, really doing research about who is showing what, where, worldwide, 
we are so much in this broadcast yourself environment where everybody is generating output and living ultimately in bubbles. And I'm not saying that the art world isn't a bubble, you know, but really um, paying attention to what artists are doing, what institutions are doing, looking at the back end of all of that practice and getting a sense of what's going on in different art worlds, I think is so important. And yeah, for me, it's always been follow the art rather than coming up with curatorial ideas and then finding the artwork that kind of fits my ideas. Most of my shows have emerged from following artists and artwork. And that's where the idea originated. You know? So I think really awareness rather than being focused on, on output and getting you know, your own ideas out there is really crucial. Challenge every colonial art historical idea you've been taught and challenge everything you think you know. Recognize we're guests on Indigenous land always. Be bold in your thinking and in finding a place for your ideas. Support artists and listen to them always. And everything we do is about them. Don't be a performative ally. Do the real work. Give up power and space to artists of color. Amplify their work and listen and figure out what you can meaningfully contribute There are many different ways to curate. A small show in an independent space or a parking lot can be as meaningful and significant as a large museum exhibition. They're all equally valuable. Critical, I think, is to find the space and the environment that best suits your own curatorial sensibility. Museums are not the only places where important curatorial work happens. So it's very important to find your own space where you can best express what you need to do curatorially. Mm. The other advice I would give is as you build, always mentor others because it creates a community of exchange that builds the field and builds the community that is solid and meaningful and that protects our work and artists from being instrumentalized. And of course, always be open to new ideas and new thinking. We've had the pleasure of visiting with some collectors who had the following advice for anyone interested in building an art collection, no matter the size or the scale. Focus. <laughs> Find something that you really love and focus on it. I think collectors should collect in fields where they have the potential of buying the best. You know, if you're going to get a minor lithograph from... Uh, Andy Warhol. Well, okay, that's nice. And people know that you have an Andy Warhol. But I just find collecting much more satisfying if you can be kind of a pioneer, if you can go after the very best material in your field, if you can be more expert than most other people in that field, if you can learn more about it. To me, that's the satisfying thing to do as a collector. And time-based media is not a bad place for that. There are work by young artists, really fine works that you can buy for $1,500 or $5,000. I mean, the price points are extremely reasonable for young artists' work relative to the kind of prices that you might think quality works of art command if you uh, go to Sotheby's or Christie's or wander into Gagosian. And saving perhaps my personal favorite for last, back in September of last year, we visited with Legacy Russell, who was just about to begin her tenure as the kitchen's new director. And she had what I would say is great advice for institutions and the people shaping them. 
Change is not an event. I think about that often because I, I do appreciate that some of what has occurred over this past year and a half has made us all feel at points as if a switch was flipped and that certain things happened overnight. But in reality, you know, much of what has continued to culminate in this moment right now really is a symptom and a product of all the things that have happened that have brought us to this point. Institutions certainly are a part of that um, in terms of the storytelling of it. And to your point, the parts of it that are deeply mired in systems of supremacy within this idea of a future space of institution. I recognize that the amazing and you know challenging and terrifying exercise of many institutions and, and kind of creative spaces is to kind of let go of, of the idea of what a space should be. You know, I think that there is so much within these histories that unfortunately was not built to love us. And so, you know, like to answer to the histories of now, right, like when people are going inside of various institutional spaces and they um, are expecting to see themselves, right, that that actually as an act and a possibility is something that is still being built, largely because these systems historically have not always supported that nor made it possible. I think it's helpful, too, to kind of look at the broader scope of institutions in the world right now and think about that the great joy of a future institutional space is one that really fully embeds itself in answering to the challenges and questions and, and tasks of the community around it. And that isn't always easy. I think, you know, it will come with at points with a lot of tenderness and hard work and confusion and debate, largely because to the point of constituents and publics, right? It is not always clear, right? The ways in which different institutions historically and as they invest in the future, build what those publics are and make investments into that, right? Some of that can feel quite actually opaque. So I recognize that it's a unique time for some of that building. And I think that the criticisms tied to, you know, labor and equity and, and histories, right? Like that actually it's a really necessary part of what this growth is and, you know, being comfortable, being uncomfortable at points and being willing to allow for artists to provide feedback to the institution that that actually should be a natural part of what that collaborative work of production and creative presence should be. And there you have it, folks. In order of appearance, that was Rafael Lozano-Hemmer, Magda Sawan, Lynn Hirschman, Leeson, Cy X, Tina Rivers-Ryan, American artist Gary Hill, Bridget Donahue, Pavel Pish, Pip Lawrenson, Asti Sharing, Christina Froner, Glenn Wharton, Sasha Arden, Patricia Falcao, Kayla Henry Griffin, Christiana Paul, Chrissy Isles, Pam Kramlick, Robert Rosencrantz, and of course, Legacy Russell. Again, you can find the full transcript with attribution on these quotes at Art and obsolescence.com. I hope you enjoyed this week's special episode. We'll be back to our regular format next week. And if you want to help support the show and our ability to compensate the artists that come on the show, I do hope you'll check out our Patreon. You can become a patron of the show for as little as $1 a month. And if only half of you that listen to the show joined at $5 a month, that would pay for one artist's fee and almost cover our operating costs. Again, that's patreon.com slash art obsolescence. The link is also in the show notes. Thank you for joining me for another episode, my friends. My name is Benfina Radden, and this has been Art and Obsolescence.